Won't you let me dream That you might again For just one dance So let my blue heart breathe Hello everybody and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is review number 752 with a review of Dream Scenario. I'm Chris Frischnese. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week on the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest films coming to a theater near you. This week, Stephen, have I been appearing in your dreams? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's always been true. That's just the way it normally goes. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is another film that uh, we were hoping and trying to catch at TIFF because uh, why not? It seemed like it was going to be much of fun. We unfortunately couldn't do it because it conflicted with some other things. And uh, lo and behold, it's out now. <laughs> we can see it. Everything's good. We have seen it now. And uh, mm-hmm. we are going to talk about it. Um, yeah, before we get started, anything you want to say? Uh uh, just in the spirit of Awkward Encounters, which I think this movie deserves to be talking about, um, I tried to seem cool to my Alamo server because when I when I sat down and said, um, <laughs> I said Joanna couldn't make it, so there was an empty seat next to me, um, he, he was like, her loss, and I was like, yeah, I, ever since I missed it at TIFF, I've always been wanting to catch it, and he looked at me just with like dead eyes and walked away <laughs> in a way that just made me feel like, oh. I uh, I thought I was being cool, but he either does not understand or just is annoyed that I even <laughs> made a point of referencing that I was a tiff. <laughs> Same thing happened with Killers of the Flower Moon, by the way. I need to just stop trying to do that. <laughs> nice. Because <laughs> I saw Killers of the Flower Moon, I think, the night it opened in Alamo. And the guy was like, oh, you're going to love it. It's amazing. And I was like, yeah, I actually saw it a few months ago. It's going to be cool to check it out again. And they just looked at me like... Fucking dumbass! Every every time, every time you see something that that you know we've seen at a festival, you should wear the full festival garb, like the hat, the shirt, the tote bag, like everything, and just be like, I'm, I'm, I'm literally the equivalent of the Nick Cage character. Which, like, I was at the festival. Oh, that's so cool! Well, what did you do? Anything cool? No, I was just, I was just there. <laughs> but I want you to find me interesting anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, as as long as our power sticks, uh, we're finally we're finally getting the atmospheric river that everybody's been telling us is coming for the last few weeks. It came right in the middle of recording these two episodes, so hopefully everything works out. And you don't get a lot of background rain sound coming in. Um, but are you ready to start doing this, Stephen? I'm ready. Let's take a listen to the trailer for Dream Scenario, and then bring all these nice listeners a review. the zebra look the way it does <laughs> so embarrassing hey focus this is how it went no it's different now oh you've been on my mind recently yeah. because you keep popping up in my dreams you don't do anything you're just there so this specific person the remarkable nobody i've also had that experience do you have a picture Have you been dreaming about me? Have I been dreaming about you? Yeah. There's like a hundred messages. Somebody wants to interview me. Well, this is strange. Maybe you should take a minute and think before you do anything drastic. Why me? Uh, I don't know. I'm special, I guess. 
feel to go viral? Who's actually had a dream about me? You're scaring me, Pearl. I'm going to have nightmares. I wish I was the one people were dreaming about. Me too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's something. How's he dealing with all this? We're not even the type of people that like attention, you know? You think other people are seeing you naked? Maybe thousands. Mm. I hope I'm behaving through your dreams. Oh, no, you're not. So I'm finally cool, huh? I didn't say that. You hear that, Janet? She's saying I'm a cool dad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> really feel like you're playing with fire here. I'm not actually doing anything to them. You know, fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Maybe we should cool this thing off. What? What do you mean? It's embarrassing. Which part? I guess I'll, uh, I guess I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, of course, not. <laughs> All right, so that was the trailer for Dream Scenario in this film. Nicholas Play Nicholas Plague, <laughs> Nicholas Cage plays a man whose life gets uh, turned upside down a little bit as he starts to realize that he's been mysteriously appearing in the dreams of a bunch of people in uh, in his town and maybe potentially around the world. Uh, but uh, yeah, Steve Miller, what did you think of Dream Scenario? Man, Dream Scenario is just one of those movies where the premise is so inventive and like perfect as a metaphor for a social phenomenon we've all at least thought about or seen happen to other people even if not to ourselves um for that alone i really love what this movie is doing and the premise is so strong i don't even mind that i think it overplays its hand and over explains itself and underlines way too many things in the second half like i have criticisms of this movie but I was having so much fun the whole way through watching how far it was willing to go. I, I'm i just not inclined to put that much weight in my criticism. I was having too much of a good time, and I thought too long about this movie afterwards. Um, I mean, at its heart, this movie, very much like uh, Anomalisa did for, you know, feeling like everyone is kind of identical or the same or getting cynical. This movie tapped into a particular neurosis that at least... I feel, and I think a lot of people feel, and exaggerated it in a way that is like so cringy and relatable. Um, and in this case, it is the neurosis of wanting to be important, you know, having a little bit of main character syndrome. Um, Paul Matthews is just a guy, he's a professor, he's kind of goofy, he's kind of boring. People don't hate him. People like him. His wife loves him. His family loves him. He's an okay dude, but he wants to be more. You know, he when he's giving a lecture, he wants to be the kind of professor who is blowing people's mind. Like, let's talk about zebras. You know, um, he wants to be an author that people care about a lot. He, when an ex runs into him or when someone gives him a compliment or someone wants to talk to him, he feels really good about himself and he can't hide the fact that he craves that kind of attention and is feeling good about himself. And every time he thinks he's playing it cool, he is unbelievably cringy and awkward. Yeah. And I love it. I, I love Nick Cage as this character and I love the, the metaphor of this movie. I, I don't know ground rules because this movie I think has two 
major arcs, and I don't know if both are game pre-spoilers or only one is. I, 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 w- I would keep them separate. I think okay. what we can say is there are two halves of this film separated by a fart. And yes. <laughs> we can just we can just talk about it in those two buckets and not okay. talk about what the buckets actually are. Like we can talk about the first okay. bucket because that's the premise of the Great. film. Yeah, and the then... first bucket is the premise. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the first bucket, it is a metaphor, obviously, for fame. Sudden fame and fame in a very twenty twenties way where you are not necessarily famous because you did something amazing or because people particularly love you or because you built some amazing following. You're famous because you're there. And people recognize you. And that alone makes you interesting in some way. And this is kind of an interrogation of how does that feel? What is the meaning behind that? Is it useful? Can it get you anywhere? And it is happening, you know, in this movie, the brilliant metaphor, which is not subtle at all, like very obvious, is being in a dream, you know. Literally, everyone sees you, and you're not fucking doing anything. <laughs> you're just there. <laughs> you're not interesting. You're not sexy. You're not cool. You're not saving the day. You're just, you happen to be around, and because of that, you are a novelty. Um, and I think this movie is just so brutal and funny in the way it explores, like, what would happen to this guy that is craving attention. Um there is a scene with him at a marketing firm. It, the people who are there are kind of a spoiler, but I'm going to do it anyway. They're played by Michael Sarah, Kate Berlant, and Dylan Galula. And I think like it, it, the cringiness between Paul as thinking he is the most interesting man in the world, wanting to capitalize on that to get what he actually cares about out in the world. In his case, his book, his uh, evolutionary biology. Um and just the awkwardness of these people trying to court him and him not understanding how limited and specific the flash in the pan fame that he has is. Um, yeah. I loved all of it so much. I, I had so much laughter in this movie. And that middle point um, surrounding the fart that you talked about, amazing, grade A, wouldn't change a thing yeah, <laughs> about yeah. any of it. Um, my high-level criticism of this movie is not the first half or even the second half, really. It's like the second half of the second half, where it decides that the metaphors it is living in that I think everyone picks up on and gets already are not enough. And it has to also be literally about those things and say that it is about those things in a way that that just felt overwritten and grating to me. And like you're not trusting your audience to pick up on the very obvious fun provocation you're doing and instead you're kind of lecturing in a way that felt it didn't totally annoy me but it it kept this movie from being truly great and instead it was just very good and a whole lot of fun uh but still there there was too much fun to be had for me to leave anything but with a big smile uh from the theater how how did you feel yeah i I mean i think i'm in a similar boat uh overall this film was like fantastically fun right like it was you know, the elevator pitch is exactly what, for the most part, it delivers. And that is pitch perfect. Everything's great about it. Um, amazing time. I think that uh, post fart, um, I think the film sort of starts to tumble downhill under its own weight. Like it, it, its desire to go from being a great premise to being a complete arc kind mm-hmm. of shoots it in the foot and, and makes it kind of less to me. Like you, you talk about it saying its themes out loud too much in the second half and i almost Mm -hmm. felt like it was saying stuff about its themes but not saying anything 
uh intelligent like it, it was not mm-hmm. dissecting the themes and like i thought for a second like because the, the first thing is like this premise it's great metaphors are fine but even the premise alone if you tried to divorce it from from metaphor it's already great and then when you add the yeah. metaphors on top of it it becomes interesting in a, in a way to think about that stuff and like what can you do with fame that's not actually from anything it's just from this moment in time where you were and and, and suddenly now people are paying attention to you but just because you have the eyeballs doesn't mean you can like turn that into anything useful or change the trajectory of where you are or suddenly bootstrap a entire book that you've been dreaming in the back of your head about writing for 10 years but never did anything you know like th- yeah. there's there's no way for you to actually you know if you send a tweet and it gets retweeted by a celebrity and suddenly you have like a hundred million people like liking and retweeting your thing it doesn't or re-xing whatever we want to call it now it, it, it's not that doesn't actually meaningfully mean anything to you because it's just a flash that happens and it's gone. I think that as the film starts to delve into territory to comment on some of the negative aspects of flash fame like that, I think that it doesn't have anything to say. And then it goes back. I mean, I already referenced, uh, I already referenced Triangle of Sadness in the last review, where there are things in that film where it feels like it's trying to flip things on its head, but it doesn't have anything to actually say about dynamic switches between men and women and careers and stuff like that. But it's doing it because it thinks that it has something to say about it, but it doesn't actually Mm -hmm. have an opinion about anything. I feel like this film kind of delves into that territory, too, afterwards, where you're putting stuff into Nicolas Cage's mouth to have him say, and I'm not sure whether it is the film is trying to criticize that thinking or bring it up as a thing to make you think like it, it just feels like the film doesn't have much to say about it. And it's just stating things out loud that it thinks it has done the work to like have a conversation about, but is instead just saying, here's a topic you talk about it. And I think that mm-hmm. like that kind of let me down towards the end of the film. It still has moments of, of fun uh, at the end. And I still kind of enjoyed the process of watching it, but I feel like the, the beginning coasted so much on just the premise and the execution uh-huh. of that aspect of it that I was like so high on the beginning of this film. And then I just, I came off that high too quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of got tired a little bit by the end yeah. of the film. Like not, not, like not necessarily like physically tired, but I just, I just was my, my high wore off too quickly and there wasn't enough to sustain it to the very, very end to make me really, really be on board with it. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where I was at by the end. Yeah, I get it. it. It isn't too different. You're just the criticisms that you feel uh, affected you a little bit more than they affected me, I guess. I totally agree with you. The problem is not just that it's saying its themes out loud. It's that it's talking about its themes and none of what it has to say is intelligent or a coherent point. Um, to me, I, I totally feel that. I, I, I feel the same. I don't know that it was even trying to comment on the the theme that it is about so much as just draw things to an absurd degree. Like they're very different movies and this is not as good as the movie I'm about to reference, but it reminded me a little of Swiss army man in the way that it's like, we have this premise. Now we're just going to fucking play with it. Like we're, we're just going to all be in a sandbox together, seeing how far we can push it. Uh, There's a scene 
especially referencing Stop Making Sense at the end that felt to me exactly like what the Daniels would do with this movie where they're just like, fuck it. Yeah, let's film it now. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I love that scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it is a great scene. Um, and so to me, even when it gets in a place where it is talking too much about the metaphor, it like annoyed me that it was talking too much, but I didn't need the movie to mean something. I feel like the the idea, the the metaphor for the two halves of the arc is compelling enough that I can draw my own feelings about it and be happy to have it in my life. Um, yeah. But I, I do think it doesn't totally stick the landing for sure. Um, yeah, I feel like Charlie Kaufman is a very obvious comparison here um, as like the way this film took a fantastical premise and made it be a reflection on a very neurotic thing people feel. Um, so much so that he even wrote a book called Ant Kind a few years ago. And I don't think it's a coincidence that um, Paul Matthews wants to write a book about intelligence this whole time. I feel like there's some clear homaging of Charlie going on here. Um, also, a little point I liked a lot is that Paul Matthews is reading a book toward the end of the movie called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is actually a very famous book by a professor. I think he's an evolutionary biology professor or an anthropology guy uh, named Robert Sapolsky. And he did the thing that Nick Cage wants to do the whole time, which is he he taught lectures that went viral that are tying ideas about evolution and the way animals live into everyday life and psychology, like why you shouldn't be stressed, why you should learn to be happy with your life. And that guy is amazing. And Paul Matthews is just this like, he is a mediocre person who wishes he were that level of famous. And his whole life is like him trying to dress for the fame he wants rather than the fame he has. And I think that awkwardness is just so wonderfully fun to watch um yeah so yeah nice yeah, there, there, there's also a little thing towards the end um that uh i will try to talk about ambiguously but there is a there is this really tragic note that is in in towards the end that has to do with a thing mm -hmm. um that like there, there's a, there's a line that um paul keeps saying to his wife and then there is a later callback to that wall that like inserts this tragedy to like where this character is and where they are with their life. And it kind of like I, I wanted it to delve into sort of those darker, darker emotional pieces. And it's like it, that's like it's weird because when it plays with emotion, it stays super subtle. But when it's playing with themes, it just goes way over the top and just like says things out loud without any intelligence. But I, I think there is yeah. actually like an emotional intelligence that's there. Like just this idea of what he's trying to do with yeah. that and what he actually desires, like what his desire is at the beginning of the film versus what his like <laughs> meager little desire is by yes. the end of the film yeah. is it, it's, it's a beautifully tragic sort of mm -hmm. sentiment that it's going um, with. And it just makes me, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed that, but it doesn't really sit and play in that space. It kind of just it, it's like a, a thing for you to pick up on and then just go away with it from it. And like you kind of don't get to sit in there and like deal with that kind of stuff. So yeah. I kind of wish there was more of that towards the end. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I also think this does work best as a kind of classic tragedy, like with an arch metaphor. But in the end, being just a really simple story about what we think we want versus what we actually want. And I think it does that really, really, really well. Um, I, 
again, this is unlike me because I hate when movies say the themes out loud, especially when they say things that don't mean anything or think they're smarter than they are. I just, I loved Nick Cage in this and I loved the premise so much. I like almost didn't care that the movie was letting me down. I just was still coasting on that high. Cool. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> uh, have we coasted enough on that eye? Do you have anything you want to say before we get to verdicts? Uh, I assume we're going to talk spoilers a little bit of, about some of these moments. Um, if so, then no. Nothing before then. <laughs> no, no, no. We, we can definitely do, we can definitely do spoilers um, if, if you'd like. Um, yeah. Otherwise, this would be like the shortest episode we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was assuming we would talk about those two halves and some of the the, the ways that it underlines things too much. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and do that then. Um, let's go ahead and get to verdicts for people who haven't seen this film yet and aren't going to stick around for spoilers. Stephen Miller, if you're going to say must-see, recommend with a caveat, wait for rental, pass the caveat, or must avoid, what would you give it? So in spite of myself and my better judgment, I'm going must-see. I, I see caveats. I see problems with this movie, but I had so much fun with it. And I just think it is rare that a movie has an idea so good that I believe it will enter the lexicon of how we talk about certain phenomenons or feelings. And I, I feel like this is the kind of movie that we are going to reference when we talk about other movies for a long time. Um, and it just gave me a lot of a lot of joy as being this really inventive thing that is played very well and taken to its logical extreme. And yeah, that makes me forgive all of the actual flaws I see in the second half of the movie. So the, the great thing about calling back to this film in perpetuity is that when we, when we reference the dream scenario, we could be talking about the film or the actual dream scenario. The film is setting up. Huh? Huh? What do you think about that? Yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Um, for me, this is going to be a record with a caveat. Uh, that caveat is just that the end, I don't think is as, as strong as the beginning. Um, and, uh, I kind of, I kind of wish that it was it left me a little bit longing by the end of it, but still an incredibly fun film. Um, see it in theaters, see it with a crowd of people. I think it's a, it's a great, uh, you know, for a film that discusses the collective consciousness of an entire society, all experiencing the same thing. It's great to be with the public as you watch this film and enjoy it mm -hmm. with them. <laughs> <laughs> definitely all right uh that's gonna do it for the non-spoiler section of our review of dream scenario um we're gonna take out but for now uh steve miller people want to find you throughout the week where can they do that uh people can find me at all the social networks at s david miller that includes x blue sky threads instagram or you can find me at s People can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or um, Christopher IRL on a number of different services, including Mastodon.social. Um, you can find me or you can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so on Overcast, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning, Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning, or Instagram.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at thespoilerwarning.com or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from a track selected from artlist.io, so hopefully you're enjoying that. That music is going to fade up. We are going to go lay down, drift off to sleep, and then when the music fades out, we're going to be in our dreams talking about this film, and uh, maybe Nick Cage will just be standing by doing nothing as we do so. Yes. See you in a second. I know you remember what we used to have
All right, we are back. This is Spoiler Territory, the after part of a review of Dream Scenario. We're talking full-blown spoilers, so watch out. Stephen Miller, what do you want to talk about first? <laughs> well, so first, I'll talk about what I hope we can both agree was awesome, which is the hinge point between the two arcs, which is the most awkward attempt at cheating maybe ever put to screen. <laughs> <laughs> Where uh, Nick Cage is with Dylan Galula, and at first she just wants to talk to him because she clearly has been having sex dreams about him. And he, in that way that he is with everyone, he he doesn't think he wants to be improper, but he definitely wants the ego hit of feeling important or sexy or interesting to someone. And then how that evolves into him going further and further in reenacting this dream culminating in him coming instantly and farting <laughs> and leaving. I mean, can is, is it does it count as instantly if it's negative time? <laughs> Preemptively, I believe is the term you're looking for. Yes. Uh yeah, yeah. It it happens uh before he wants it to happen. <laughs> I it is probably the most like overtly ridiculous comic moment of the movie but i feel like the way this character has been presented to us it it earns it well enough where i just i loved it this is exactly what should happen to this guy <laughs> um, <laughs> and i like i wonder okay so do you think there's something metaphysical about that moment that causes his downfall <laughs> like the moment his biggest supporter I, I no longer stands by him is this just a metaphor for him being canceled in a very like literal metaphorical way yeah i mean <laughs> Yeah, uh, given the way the director handles a lot of the other themes after that point, maybe it is just supposed to be a little, little thing. But I think no matter what way you slice it, there is something about, like, he is this passive guy who won't take any action, right? He sits behind, doesn't do anything, is just always present but never noticed off to the side. And he's kind of just drifting through space unnoticed. And, and so he becomes being seen in dreams as a person doing the same thing. He's not actually participating in the dream. He just happens to be present there. But the first moment he actually tries to engage and put himself forward, it all collapses. And I think that that is like the inciting moment that like breaks the entire paradigm of how other people are dreaming it. And, and it's like his yeah. shame is manifesting in other people's dreams as yep. violence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that read. That is definitely how I felt it, even though I, I, I didn't care to make an actual logical argument for why it happened. But it, to me, it was either his shame was so palpable it is felt as violence, or this is a classic tragedy and he has done the immoral thing and now his downfall must happen. Even though the only way he knows how to be immoral is to come in his pants instantly and not even be able to <laughs> to do any of the stuff that he thought he was going to do. Uh, Anyway, amazing scene, 10 out of 10, no notes. Um, the, what follows, so what follows is him metaphorically being canceled. And in the language of the movie, everyone is still dreaming about him. But now that character who had been merely there instead is horrifying and traumatizing. This already on its own here, the metaphor was heavy handed. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say otherwise. He is kids at his college feel traumatized and they need a safe space. And like, there's a lot of language that is clearly playing with it. Even the fact that he is a professor, I feel like is playing with the idea of cancel culture in a very obvious way, because that is kind of the battleground where a lot of these conversations are happening anyway. Yeah. Um, 
But I still loved all that, even though it was such an obvious metaphor, because I thought I kept thinking about the idea of fame being total happenstance just because you are known. And so should I feel bad that this guy is now feeling the alternate side of that, of being known and whether fairly or unfairly being hated and that hatred following you everywhere. Like I, I liked the idea and how cleanly the premise was divided between those two arcs split by the fart. Um, I, I was a fan of that. To me, the only time the underlining really annoyed me, um, to the point that it did kind of detract from the movie is a, when he starts literally talking about being canceled, it's as if they didn't trust the audience to get the most obvious metaphor on earth. Um, and then also when the movie decides to then not only be about cancellation, but retroactively be literally about fame and influencers living together, using a device to, project themselves into other people's dreams. It it felt like there was a fake commercial where the movie decided we are going to say everything out loud in a more dumb way than we have already managed to do with our metaphor. Um, (laughs) And that, to me, that served nothing. Like that, that was just the movie going too far for no reason and not, um, not helping me. But otherwise I, to me, I never struggled with the idea of should I pity him for being canceled? And is this saying something about, cancel culture being bad or unfair like to me i never thought anything like that to me this movie was just playing with the the nature of celebrity and the difference between banal rises to fame which were as early as like reality shows in the 2000s where you talk about people being famous just for being famous um and the the other side of that coin being the milkshake duck being like how quickly you can become the the thing that everyone hates and I like that on its own without it needing to be any kind of message beyond that. Yeah, I, I the, the the dumb commercial that you're referencing at the end of the film, I actually liked it, not because it was insightful, but because if the film ended there, like if that was the end, right, was like all this happened, this thing happens, and it gives way to this this really silly, like that scene is sort of like a dissection of marketing I mean, it's a continued dissection of marketing, right? Plus, the casting of of it is so fucking brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, But, like, I thought, I was like, oh, the film's going to end. Like, I was like, that's kind of a funny ending. Like, I'm I'm, I'm down for that. And then there's, like, a whole movie left after that where it's, like, dealing with all the ramifications. And, like I said before, I actually do like the fact, like, the tragedy of Paul buying one of these devices and desperately trying to use it to claw his way back into his his now ex-wife or separated wife's uh, psyche yeah. to try to make her think about him at all. Like, there's yeah. something beautifully tragic about that that made me actually, like, care again about what was going on in the film. And it was, like, the idea of him having to suffer through being bombarded, his own dreams being bombarded just because he's trying to use the device so that he can get to, to at least make his his separated wife think about him at all. Um, I like that idea, but the film doesn't like play in that space. It kind of just has that present as like an idea that got added at the end. And I, I kind of wish that it did more with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. I thinking about his desire to reconcile with his wife, which is the, the symmetry of the movie is he begins as a guy who 
I think for all of his awkwardness and we laugh at him, he's living a nice life. And like, I think his relationship with his wife, uh, Julianne Nicholson, is totally charming and they're playful with each other. And, you know, they go to bed at night and talk about their respective days and she's rooting for him as if he weren't a loser and he needs that in his life. Like, I thought it was all lovely. And then he wants the fame animal. He has this desire for more. And then in the end, he wishes he could just go back to that life that he used to have. Love all of that. Um, we alluded to in pre-spoilers the closing scene, I think the closing shot of the movie, or very close to it, is his dream, him getting in her dreams, trying to inject himself in the Stop Making Sense um, big suit that Byrne wears, rescuing her from a fire. It, and that, it's the so fantasy that she told him exactly. she had earlier on. Yes. Yeah, he's trying to conjure up that fantasy that she had and just be the idiosyncratic weirdo who was in love that uh, that he wanted to be. That was lovely. There's a scene leading up to it that I also thought was really a nice cinematic touch, which is when he's saying goodbye to her before he heads to Paris for his um, Louis C.K. cancellation book tour or whatever. Um, <laughs> and before he does that, he he is trying to say, hey, I could... I'm not leaving for a few days. We could talk. We could reconcile. Like, let me latch on to this thing you said just to be nice and try to turn it into a real thing. And he has this vision of them being serious and hugging and talking everything out and crying and what it would look like for them to get back together. And then, as far as I can tell, there's no flourish that tells you that is a vision. And then we've snapped back to reality. It just happens. And then the real thing happens instead, which is nothing. And... I found that pretty moving because it's all about his his passivity is the thing that defines him even at the beginning of the movie. He he is a bystander in life. He's not a main character even though he wishes he were a main character. He just can't do the things, take the things, be the person he wants to be. And now I took it quite literally where if he had put himself out there and really tried to be honest and himself rather than tried to passively let life happen to him the way he wishes it would happen. He might have gotten her back, but he is just a, a hollow shell who cannot do that. And to me, I, I found that really moving. I don't know if that is how you took it or not. So I, I read that scene differently. I read that scene as there was no chance in hell <laughs> that that was going to happen, but he tried to put out a feeler and mm. then she tried her best not to just say like, f like you know, like basically, she like <laughs> he's like, oh, I guess I'm gonna leave, and she's like, oh, I guess I won't see you then. And he's like, no, there's still mm. four days I could come back. And then she's like, no, like the 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 tears, oh, yeah. the tears that are almost coming out of her face, <laughs> I take those as her not wanting to hurt him more, mm. not tell me to stay you know like you know what I mean? oh yeah i, I mean 100% i do yeah. not think the way the scene goes down she is wishing he would stay in yeah. my memory the tears are only in her eyes in the fantasy that he's having about what what it could be if he could only come to her and break down and be real and not be fake okay and actually if he could like like he never apologizes correctly in this movie or does anything with integrity in this movie after things start falling apart and he doesn't even know how to try to reconcile with integrity instead he's the 
fake nice politeness smile try to latch on to a social nicety that she gave like I, I just feel like he's like a kind of sniveling, pathetic person in the end. And I want to believe that if he could be that original guy again, she might actually fall for him. But he's just incapable of, of being it. Yeah. But no, I, I don't think in that scene she wishes he would stay. I just I want to believe that he he could have turned things around still. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for me, for me, it seemed like it was so far gone that there was no hope. And it was really just you need you being paul need to recognize this and don't try to extend a friendly hand because that hand will only be like beat back and yeah. it, it's like the tragedy is he still thinks he has a chance um which may i mean it depends on if you want to consider the ending uh, yeah. a success in in the neuro whatever device or or you want to consider it like a Florida project sort of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, it could go either way. Yeah. Unless, unless at the end, he went inside his own dream. And that was the dream that he was having that she was there. Mm, interesting. Interesting. He, and then he just falls into limbo. <laughs> I, I, I do also want to say, even though, again, it is exaggerated and fairly obvious, I really liked his youtube apology scene and then the aftermath of that where you you think for a moment that this is the guy actually having his breakdown and being apologetic and then nicholas cage is just overdoing it because he's nick cage and he's going yeah. into 11 and then as it goes on and it becomes more obviously self-serving and cringe and then the character is recognizing it being cringe I, it's a small thing but i like i like the way it was played i thought it was the right amount of very funny but then for a while believable that the movie doesn't know that this is stupid and then yeah. when the movie reveals that it knows i felt like a sigh of relief yeah i i guess i kind of wish that society we saw this or society's reaction not just the family's reaction to it because the wife is like um that was dumb you can't do that and then the daughter's like yeah. i might have to literally kill myself <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> which, which got a good laugh in our audience um but like that that that's an example of like we know it's cringe but the like the film isn't dissecting why it's cringe or or saying anything about like how do you appropriately apologize it's just like what would be funny if he did this apology and like regurgitated the words of his dean <laughs> at the school you know yeah. like you know what i mean like it, it feels like it's 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 overtly cringe in a way where like we're like it's not trying to deal with like how would you recover from a situation like this right it's like it stays at the surface level metaphor and doesn't actually deal with the ramifications of of cancel culture or any yeah. of that kind of stuff so yeah and i mean i think this is obvious but a crucial distinction in this metaphor is he is being canceled when other than attempting to cheat on his wife which is bad i don't condone it but it is not a crime against society in and, any way and society doesn't know he, about that right yeah 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 and other than that he has not done something wrong you know he doesn't handle the apology well he doesn't handle the aftermath very well but all things considered he doesn't handle any of those evilly or with total malice either and i think you could read this movie as if it were 
just anti-cancel culture or saying, oh, we've gone too far, we're too woke or whatever. But I don't read it that way at all, because I think the fact that he has not done anything wrong is why it is only about us interrogating the social phenomenon. And what I find interesting is he hasn't done anything wrong. And yet I still think his apology is cringe and gross, even yeah. though I don't know why I do, because he is quite literally the most tragic victim <laughs> in this narrative. <laughs> like he is the one his who his actual, <laughs> his actual real life is being destroyed rather than just people's perception traumatizing them. Um, and I, I don't, I like that. I like that the movie decides to take that tact Um to me, it doesn't make it a weird anti-cancel culture warrior type movie or whatever. It makes it a just interesting, thinky dissection of how would you feel if your fame was unwarranted and your infamy was unwarranted, but you know there's no right way to deal with that other than just going the fuck away. And I, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And also for a person who lived his life going the fuck away normally... <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like it was really only himself that was getting in the way. Yeah, like like there's a counterfactual where he does the right thing and just stays out of the limelight. And I think his daughter's nightmares would eventually go away or be fine. Or he might have been able to truly take the immersion therapy, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy at the school at its own pace rather than trying to talk and then fucking it up. Like he probably could have come back from it, but he just... He got a taste of that fame, and he can't let it go. Yeah. So last last question for you, Stephen. If you were still in school, and uh, you started having nightmares every night where your professor was killing you, <laughs> how would you handle that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it has to do with how visceral the nightmares are. I Abstractly, I want to say it wouldn't impact my real life feeling about the professor like i've had nightmares of my twin brother murdering me or like <laughs> i've had all sorts of things that didn't have a lasting impact on my ability to feel something but i think in this movie there's something more real about the dreams like more tangible about his presence than the typical kind of hazy dream logic that people have so i don't know it's a it's a fun thought experiment like he didn't do anything wrong, and yet it is terrifying to be around him. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> no, but no one is. No one has a right to have people want to be around them. So there, there was there was one moment in the film that I was I was genuinely worried about. Um, not genuinely worried about. I was. I spent too much time thinking of um uh, in the scenes toward the end where people were starting to get like attacked, right? Because like the one thing we know from things that deal with dreams is supposedly you wake up before you actually die, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you can't die in your dream because you'll die in real life. But one of his students, he clocks oh, in yeah. the back of the head with a hammer and then sits on top of him, proceeds to just smash his face repeatedly with a hammer. And I was like, is that guy dead now in real life? <laughs> it, was, it was a thought that I had. Because clearly the dream yeah. was still going. It's not like Nick Cage is having the same dream, right? It's like his, yeah. he's, he, you know, they, they jokingly reference astral projection, right? And, and something like, like he is going into somebody else's subconscious, but it's not like they're both sharing a dream state. So it's like, it's not like that guy woke up and Nick Cage is just beating his lifeless body in his own <laughs> dream now, right? If, right. It was, 
It's, I, I thought no, way too I, long about that scene when it was happening. I, I thought about it too because it does break the perspective. I, I didn't mind it, but it definitely it made me think like, okay, wait, what what is actually happening in this moment? Um, unrelated to any of that, but I think my favorite kind of throwaway joke in the movie or the kind of hyper hyper whatever comedy the movie is doing is when he is in the marketing firm office and they're spitballing on different ideas. The first idea is Sprite, which is funny in a more like classic comedy way of this is what's going to happen. Yeah. The second idea is we're going to have Obama dream about you. <laughs> that that literally like what would that even do? What would that mean? Like only Obama knows if he dreamt about you. <laughs> it, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> But th- there was something about that that just cracked me up. It was just yeah. the perfect level of absurdity to me. I, a, a moment that I liked uh, uh, was we know that Paul is just passive every time he appears in somebody's stream. And he just kind of like passing. Th- he's always just like walking through like, huh, what's going on here? But then there's the girl that's like on top of the piano when the like the alligators, the crocodiles, whichever one they are, are on the ground. Mm-hmm. And he comes walking in and then immediately walks away because he's like, <laughs> nope, I'm out of here. I don't want to participate in any of this. Yeah, and it's like it's like that was sort of an action that he took. <laughs> yeah. Being a coward, like at least it's something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff to love in this film. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. Cool. I love how there was a moment where I thought this episode was going to be 20 minutes long and we already just crossed the 45 minute mark. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) All right. Any any last thoughts on the film, Stephen? No, it's fun. Uh, I do have a weird parasocial podcast thing where I listen to Dylan Galula's podcast, uh, Lecture Hall. And seeing her in this movie, even though I first discovered her from her being in a movie, Shithouse, seeing her here, I was like, oh, my God, that person I know is in a movie, (laughs) which is uh, another one of those weird fame things, much like what Nick Cage goes through, which is it is awkward thinking, you know, someone just because you happen to hear them often. (laughs) Yeah. The real weird part is when she has a crazy sex dream about you tonight. (laughs) Yeah, that 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 would be very strange. Apparently, her mom, like, either attended the premiere or wanted to or something. And then she had to be like, I had a little bit spoiled because she talked about having to tell her mom, like, you're doing what with Nicholas Cage in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's probably going to do it for this review of Dream Scenario. Thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next one. Bye. Bye. Waving to people who can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>